from New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets, where we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. This will be an episode far away from finance. Last week in New York City, I hosted a book lunch for the author Ted Merwin on his book, Pastrami on Rye, An Overstuffed History of the Deli. The conversation was really interesting, and I thought, why not post it on the podcast for those who couldn't be with us in person? So I'm going to turn this over to that discussion from last week, but one note before I do that, later this month, our next episode will be back on the investment world. It will be all you wanted to know about cannabis, but we're afraid to ask. My guests will include a top lawyer from the sector, a businessman in the space, and a portfolio manager to help you think about how to think about cannabis within the scope of your investment portfolio. So with that, let's turn it over to my discussion with Ted from last week. My name is Mark Penzner. I'm a financial advisor here at Bernstein. And on behalf of all my colleagues who invited you here today, thank you for joining. Uh, we hope this is a pleasant, relaxed lunch for all of you outside of the typical stocks and bonds and capital markets stuff we usually talk about. And so we're going to have some fun and hopefully have a, a nice lunch from Second Avenue Deli to uh, celebrate the book by Ted called Pastrami on Rye. Uh, Ted is a writer for New York Jewish Week. He is a professor of religion and Judaic studies at Dickinson College. He's the founding director of the Ashbel Center for Jewish Life at the college. Ted, thanks for joining. So you're so welcome, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. So I, I think the the easy first question is: can, it would be helpful, I think, for the audience to get a little bit of about of your background and and why you chose to spend almost a decade researching for this. Sure, I'm happy to talk about it. So I'm actually from New York. I'm a native New Yorker, uh, although I grew up in Great Neck. And uh, do we have any people from, from Great Neck here? Oh, wow. The room. Oh, my God. Wow. I grew so you have to be very specific and careful with your deli recommendations here. I grew up in Great Neck Estates. And I grew up in a family that was very secular. So my family didn't belong to a synagogue. I didn't have a bar mitzvah when I was 13. And our Jewish identity in many ways was based around food. I was very close to my grandparents, my mother's parents, who lived in Flushing. So I saw them pretty much every weekend. And they were also not particularly religious, but they were very ethnically Jewish. You know, like the, their, their accents, um, their places they would vacation, like uh, the Catskills and Miami Beach. Um, you know, their sort of cultural references. Everything was very, was very Jewish. And so when my grandparents would come and visit, um, the, the only kind of food that they ate was Jewish food. I never saw my grandparents eat an egg roll or a slice of pizza in their entire lives, and they lived fair, to be fairly old. Uh, so when they would come, we would have to find some kind of Eastern European-type food. You know, when we came into the city, there used to be I don't know if, you, if, if uh, anyone has ever been to like a, like a Hungarian. There used to be these like little Hungarian or Romanian kinds of restaurants. I don't know if they're still around. Well, there's like Sammy's Romanian, which is like a tourist place or whatever. And there was Triplets, which was if you saw the movie yeah. uh, recently, the documentary uh, about the ident- three identical strangers. Um, so we had a deli around the corner from our house. I was just talking to, these, uh, to the Levinsons about it called Squires. And... Um, so I would be the one who was kind of deputized to go around the corner to Middle Neck Road. And uh, it was always the same order. It was a dozen slices of seeded rye bread. It was a, um, a pound of turkey, um, a pound of roast beef. Um, it was a, um, 
a little like round squat container of gravy and, and a can of Heinz vegetarian baked beans. And they would kind of wrap it up in a, one of those paper bags. You know how they actually used to write on the, with a grease pencil, like in the butcher shop or in the deli, they would total up the amount on the outside of the bag. And they would give it to me and I would come home. And my parents actually still live in the same house on Elm Street in Great Estates. And I would come in the door, I would put it down on their round kitchen table. And I swear, within five minutes, there was not a crumb, there was not a speck, there was not a morsel of food that was left on that table. I mean, that tradition lives to this day, as you can see from the back of the, the room. No. It was like, I mean, many of us just celebrated the holiday of Passover. And so you remember the plagues, you know, remember the plague of the locusts that kind of come in and they eat everything in sight, you know? They devour everything, you know, and so that was what it was. I mean, it really was um, such such a moment of connection to our to our to our Jewishness. But it was funny because I was I was telling this story at at a, at a talk not too long ago, and somebody said to me, "That's so ironic that this was your experience." And I said, "What do you mean? What's ironic about it?" And they said, "Well, you were talking about you you ate turkey and roast beef, you know, like who goes to a deli for turkey and roast beef? Like, didn't you have pastrami? Didn't you have corned beef?" Didn't you have tongue? Actually, my grandmother loved tongue. We, we didn't bring it to the house, but when we went out to a deli, that's what she always ordered. She loved tongue. It was her favorite food. Um, and so what I realized was that what we were doing as a Jewish family was already something that was very American. Um, because, you know, turkey and roast beef are like more American kinds of cold cuts than pastrami and, and, and corned beef. And, and in many ways, that is the theme of my book. That, you know, the deli, we think of the deli as this, you know, or the kind of food that was served in the deli as this kind of really Europe, Eastern European, you know, um, you know, traditional Jewish food. And yet, you know, in many ways, the deli wasn't really an, you know, an Eastern European thing. I mean, I, I tried. I mean, if you read the book, you'll see. I mean, I, I did as much research as I could. And I found almost no delis in Eastern Europe. I mean, think about, I'm sure you all know Fiddler on the Roof, right? Tell me the scene in Fiddler in which they're sitting around in the shtetl of Anatevka eating pastrami sandwiches. I mean, they're not eating it, you know? I mean, it's partly because, you know, Tevi was a dairy man, and the dairy and the meat wouldn't have gone together, but whatever, right? I mean, there's just a kind of American quality about the deli, because when people lived in Eastern Europe, they, they couldn't afford to eat meat, right? Meat wasn't a part of their diet. Um, you know, it was, they were eating pickles and bread, you know, for every meal or whatever. They, they were incredibly poor. So it was only when Jews first came to America and started to experience a little bit of affluence and upward mobility that the deli really kind of came into its own. So can you expand upon that? Because I found that to be one of the interesting parts of the book, that I associated it with Eastern European cuisine. Uh -huh. your, your book goes into the fact that it, it really wasn't, in fact, it wasn't even really turn-of-the-century Lower East Side cuisine. So, so when did it become, I don't want to say phenomenon, but I guess there was a point in time where it was. So, so how did it become what we think of it as to be today? So this is one of my favorite pictures. This is from Katz's. It's, it's, I guess it's not, it's not tongue, right? It's pastrami, corned beef, and brisket. Yeah, and brisket. Um, but... Yeah, so this was, this was actually the assumption that I began the research with, that the deli's heyday in America was the, the immigrant period on the Lower East Side. So it was, you know, I mean, Jews started coming to America in really large numbers beginning in the early 1880s, 
right, from Russia with the assassination of the, of the Tsar. And uh, came up until the early 1920s when the immigration restrictions went into effect. Um, but I figured it was really like the, you know, 1880s, 1890s, you know, turn of the century, right? When you had so many hundreds of thousands of Jews who were coming from, you know, Romania and from Poland and Lithuania and so on. Except that if it really wasn't a kind of food that they were familiar with in their respective homelands, and if they really didn't have any money, right, then it doesn't make sense that that's when the heyday of the deli was. So, yes, there were delis, you know, but it wasn't a big part of Jewish life. It wasn't a big part of Jewish culture. So the heyday of the deli was really in the 1920s and 30s. It was the interwar period, right? Jews started to move out of the Lower East Side in the years kind of leading up to and, 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 and then after the First World War. They moved to Brooklyn. They moved to the Bronx. They moved to Upper Manhattan, right? Harlem was a Jewish neighborhood into the 20s. And that's when the deli kind of really came into its own. So, um, the, you know, the, the Carnegie and the stage deli opened up in the 30s. So they're later. Um, the deli really kind of becomes an important part of not just Jewish culture, but New York culture. The, you know, the whole gastronomic foodscape of New York City really in the 1920s. Um, Harpo Marx... When he came back from, you know, he and his brothers grew up in East Harlem, but they became famous. They traveled all over the country doing vaudeville before they, you know, did films. And he said that his, um, he loved coming back to New York to be on Broadway and whatever. He said, because when, when we came back to New York, he said, I had two homes away from home. You want to guess what they were? They're two delis in the theater district in New York. What were the two, like, famous delis of that era? Second Avenue is 40s, Lindy's, and Rubens, right. He said, these were places where I found my people speaking my language with my accent, right? These were not kosher delis, right? They, weren't, they served all kinds of different food, right? They, the, the meat wasn't kosher. They served cheesecake, right? You couldn't leave without eating a massive slice of cheesecake, right? And not only that, but what I found really interesting in writing the book was that these were places that were imbued with the glitz and the glamour of the celebrity culture of the day, right? There was a reason why they were in the theater district and why the film stars, the silent film stars, and the, and the stars of the stage, right, would, would come to these places. I mean, Al Jolson, he would, you know, after his however many curtain calls at the Winter Garden Theater, would invite the entire audience to come back to Lindy's for a sandwich with him. And people would, you know what I mean? Because that was part of the excitement of it. And it was really, really interesting to me that, you know, not only were these places where you could maybe rub shoulders with somebody who was famous, but that the menu covers were decorated with caricatures. The walls were covered. You remember the Carnegie Deli or the Stage Deli where all the pictures up on the wall of all the people who had ever eaten, eaten there, right? Um, so this was something I think was very important for Jews during this period because these were second-generation Jews for the most part. They were the children of immigrants. They weren't so much immigrants anymore. They were the children of immigrants. They were speaking English. They were desperate to be accepted and to be successful in American society. But they weren't yet. 1920s was an incredibly anti-Semitic. I mean, now, unfortunately, we're entering this new period of anti-Semitism that we all thought was, was over and would, we'd never see again, right? But the 1920s, up until, you know, up until now, I guess, was the most anti-Semitic decade in American history. I mean, I'm sure you all know about Henry Ford, you know, and the Dearborn Independent, and, you know, his 
you know, um, you know, sort of constant complaining that the Jews were uh, taking over the economy and taking over the entertainment business and destroying the moral fiber of the of the country, right? And so Jew, and Jews weren't allowed in universities, right? There were quotas on Jews. We were just talking about this. There were quotas on Jews in universities and, and medical schools and all kinds of professional schools, right? So Jews were kept out of the upper echelons of society. And they needed a place to go where they could be among each other, where they could feel successful, where they could feel special, where they could have a kind of vicarious celebrity, where they could eat these huge overstuffed sandwiches, right? Which in many ways were symbols of the American dream, right? To be able to afford so much meat, right? To be able to eat so much meat coming from a culture, even a, you know, a few generations back, in which meat was something that was, that was a real luxury. So that's what I found interesting writing the book. A lot of people said to me, oh, you're writing a book about delis, so I guess you're writing really about kosher delis. And I said, yes, I'm writing about kosher, but I can't just write about kosher delis, you know, if I'm writing a book about, about this, because there were lots of delis that weren't. I mean, there were kosher delis in Brooklyn, and in the Bronx, there was a kosher deli on every corner in, how many of you grew up in the outer boroughs in, in Jewish neighborhoods where there were delis all over the place, right? Where the kosher deli, the corner kosher deli was the cornerstone of the Jewish neighborhood, you know? Actually, it's the 1930s. If you want to know when the actual, the real heyday of the deli was in New York, in the 1930s, there were 1,550 kosher delis in the five boroughs of New York City. 1,550. And now there are what? As I say, how many today? A handful. I mean, there's almost none. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Maybe there are 15. Maybe it's been a 99% decrease. Um, there are very few. And, the, and there, I mean, it depends what you count as part of New York. You know, I mean, Long Island, where I'm from, there are almost no kosher delis that are left. Um, there are a few in, in New Jersey. Um, but they're fading out. You know, they don't really, they don't, they're not really going to probably last that much longer. And not only that, but, you know, even some of the famous non-kosher delis, like the Carnegie, you know, that we saw a minute ago. This is another one in, in, in Brooklyn. What I found was interesting here, I don't know if you can see it in the image, but in the lower right-hand corner here, it says, uh, Lulu's famous chow mein on a bun. Does anybody remember that? Chinese food on a bun? So what, what happened was, I mean, if you, I think you wanted to know, uh, ask me a little bit about what happens during World War II. I can talk about World War II. Yeah, if you and want. part World War II, and then I would think for many in this room, they think of of the Delhi heyday as the late '40s, early '50s as part of their childhood. But it, but in your book, that's categorized as the decline of the Delhi era. Yeah, right. So this would be like a 1950s or probably '60s even uh, kosher deli in Brooklyn. Um, but yeah, I mean, what happens what happens during the war is that there are meat shortages. So the delis don't have the, the meat to be able to uh, stay open seven days a week. By the way, this is an interesting thing I should mention. A lot of people say that the Second Avenue Deli and other delis are not really kosher, even though they advertise themselves as kosher, because they're open on Shabbat. Um, but almost every kosher deli was open on Shabbat. <laughs> of the 1,500 that I mentioned, <laughs> they were almost all open on Shabbat, because you could not be open, you know, uh, I mean, if uh, you know, the turn of the 20th century, you couldn't be open on Sundays because of blue laws, you know? So if you were closed Saturday and Sunday, forget it, you know? But the weekends was always the time when they did the most business. They had to be open on. They had to be open on Shabbat. But what happens um, after the war is that Jews moved to the suburbs. And so you don't have this kind of urban culture in the same way that you used to. Jewish neighborhoods, 
you know, start to start to change and some of them start to empty out a little bit. And so you really have a wholesale change in the way that a lot of Jews relate to their identity. I mean, you have huge suburban synagogues that are built in the 1950s um, that many Jews only visit, you know, for the high holidays. But still, you know, there's this um, sort of renewed, renewed focus on religion in the years after World War II. And, uh, and Jews want to be seen as just like every other, you know, like the Protestants and the Catholics in the, in the suburbs. And they don't, have, they don't have as many delis anymore. I mean, the delis, to some extent, follow them out to the suburbs, but, you know, it's not like it was in the, in the city. And you also have a real change in the, way, in the attitudes that Jews develop towards their own cuisine because a lot of Jews who served in the war have discovered that there are other kinds of food out there particularly Asian food, particularly Chinese food. <laughs> and the Chinese restaurant in the post-war years in many suburbs is just as popular, if not more popular, than the Jewish deli. That becomes the Sunday night hangout in a way that the, that the deli used to be, you know? And so Jews start to, um, in many ways, even look down on their... I mean, my parents grew up really looking down on their parents, um, you know, what they saw as kind of an excessive, uh, you know, um, focus on, uh, on only eating Jewish food. And so they and many in their generation really prided themselves on their cosmopolitanism, you know, being, educa- being college educated, being well-traveled, uh, knowing about every little ethnic restaurant, you know, in the, in the city. And um, so there's a real kind of shift in terms of, you know, the way that Jews see their own food, many of them start to see it in much less positive, in much less positive ways. And not only that, but you have non-Jews who start to discover Jewish food for the first time. And there are delis that become in some neighborhoods that, in some urban neighborhoods, um, I mean, I know particularly in Chicago, this is actually from DRG, which is a deli that's just closed recently in Washington, D.C., in DuPont Circle. Um, but particularly in, in Chicago, I know there were delis that um, remained in the, like the Maxwell Street area, the Jewish neighborhood, even after the Jews mostly moved away, and they developed a clientele among the African-American people who had moved into that neighborhood. I mean, where I live in Baltimore, um, or at least in Owings Mills, um, there's a deli called Lenny's, which serves, you know, like corned beef and pastrami, and also fried chicken and macaroni and cheese. And most of the, all the people who work there are African-American. A lot of the clientele there is African-American. And it's kind of like a combination Jewish food, soul food type of place. I don't know if that exists in, in, in New York. <laughs> so you're talking about the notion of, of the New York deli culture, but there's also deli, as you're alluding to, all around the country. So were there pockets of Jews? And I think what's interesting, although it's small in your book, is the delis that are in the Deep South were there Jewish populations in those areas and then the deli came to them or was it vice versa? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, actually. You know, I think when Jews moved out of New York, they, they really missed, <laughs> they really missed, you know, certain aspects of, of, of Jewish life here. And, uh, and the food was a big part of that. And, um, and so they would want it, you know, uh, in those days you couldn't necessarily ship it from one part of the country to another and have it still be, you know, edible or fresh. And so they would, you know, delis would open up in, you know, Charlotte and Savannah, you know, and, and, uh, and places like that. And, um, and certainly in other parts of the country as well. I mean, one of the things that I found that I haven't really been able to figure out yet is why certain cities in the United States became 
you know, known as kind of deli towns and others didn't. So, for example, Baltimore, where I live, was definitely a place where delis were a very big part of the Jewish culture. Washington, D.C., almost no delis. I mean, I don't know why. Never really, and Washington, D.C. now is one of the fastest growing Jewish populations in the country. I think it's up to like the, I think it's the third um, most, you know, most Jews living there, I think. Uh, Chicago, absolutely, you know, uh, you know, known for its delis. Los Angeles, particularly because of the association with the entertainment industry and, you know, a certain deli where all the, you know, writers would hang out, a certain place where all the agents would hang out. It's still like that to some extent nowadays. Um, San Francisco, not so, you know, not so much. So I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really figured out why that happened in that way. But certainly wherever Jews went, there was a desire for, you know, bagels and for pastrami and, you know, and stuff like that. And I wonder if that's, I don't know how much that's still true, because what I find in traveling around the country is that newer Jewish delis that have opened in California and other parts of the country tend to have a, a majority non-Jewish clientele. Um, I don't think Jews are eating in delis anywhere near the way that they, that they used to. Maybe in New York a little bit, but, but just think about how many delis have closed, even in New York so in Ted, the last 10 years. Why do you think years. that's happening? I mean, I think it's a good question. I, mean, I think that a lot of it is because of concerns about health. Which is nothing new. I mean, this I write in the book about. This food's not healthy, is it? I, not particularly. Okay. I, I, sorry, in case this is news to anyone. Um, don't eat for the rest of the day. Uh, actually, I one of my students at Dickinson, um, her father is a cardiologist in New Jersey, and he's a good friend of, or no, he's actually the cardiologist to the guy who owns this this place called Harold's. Has anyone been to Harold's and Edison? Yeah. I mean, that is that is some place, right? I mean, it, you have to describe it. It's like it's like, I mean, I describe it in the book as it's like it's like um, Alice in Wonderland kind of thing. I mean, you you walk in and and there's this whole display on your left of cases with the desserts and the and the cakes are like this big, you know. I mean, you order a matzo ball soup and it like is a bowl for like you know the matzo ball takes up the whole table, you know, kind of thing. You order one sandwich for your whole party because the sandwiches are so gargantuan. So the guy who owns it used to be the owner of the Carnegie Deli. And he opened this place called Harold's. And so, uh, so this guy is his, is his cardiologist. <laughs> and I never, I never understood, like, how do you eat here all the time, you know? I mean, you would think that your patients would see you eating here, and they would really wonder, you know, about your, about your, you know, your credentials or something like that. But uh, what were you asking me? Oh, about uh, why people are turning away from it. I think health considerations, I think, as I mentioned, you know, Jews... Um, you know, starting in really the 60s, um, you know, discovered so many other different kinds of food. Um, I think the price of meat is very high, and it's very hard to make a, you know, make a, a profit when your main business is sandwiches. You know, you can't really make a profit on it. So you have to, right, restaurants make their profit on what, drinks, dessert, you know, things that really weren't necessarily the mainstay of a, of a Jewish deli. So, the, you know, the fact that Ronnie Dragoon is still in business, you know, running Ben's, and that he's able to have a whole chain of delis, and that he's able to, you know, and, and most of them are still, that he's opened, are still in business. And then he has one in Boca, and now in Scarsdale. Anyone here from Scarsdale? Um, is um, Epstein's, is that still around too, in Yonkers and Scarsdale? Just barely. Okay, that's another chain, right? Or There are two of them, right? Um, so I'm not saying that there aren't still some hangers-on, you know, but, but for the most part, this is not, this is, my, my children are not growing up with deli food 
in the way that that I, that I did. My my children's Jewish identity is not based around around food, really. I don't. I think it's much more based on, um, you know, on religion, on you know, Jewish camp and you know, Jewish youth groups and things like that. So we went from food to camp <laughs> as a culture. I guess. Um, we're. we're uh, go ahead, Neil. Yes. 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 Yeah. Well, I still, I still stay. When I come to New York, I still stay in Flushing, where my grandparents used to live. So I got to eat very good Chinese food last night. But in Manhattan, not only, in not not well, it's, yeah. I mean, it's also that you know, there's there was this trend towards like fusion and whatever. So it's like. You couldn't, I mean, can you even go to a Chinese restaurant without having to, like, have a sushi bar and a Thai and Korean and this, all that stuff? Vietnamese, you know, it's like it's Pan-Asian. Everything's Pan-Asian nowadays because why would you possibly want to limit yourself? I mean, when I was growing up in Great Neck, you know, my parents made a big deal about the fact that we're going to drive into Queens and we're going to go to a Szechuan restaurant or we're going to go to a Hunan restaurant. You know, I mean, it was, like, really important what province of China the food came from, you know? Nowadays, forget it. I mean, you, it doesn't even matter, you know, it's because it's not even just Chinese food, but you're absolutely right, and I, I wonder about that. You know, why is, why is it so hard to be able to get a good Chinese meal in, in, uh, in New York? Uh, last question, then we'll turn it over to the audience. Um, because we're having Second Avenue Deli, they, they kind of have an interesting history, having been on Second Avenue, closed, was restarted, I believe, by The Sun, yeah. Right, and now there the are two nephew. locations yeah. for the ne- so so maybe some color on on that story and and how that relates to maybe just the general history and future of where this business is going. Yeah, so uh, so the second half of is actually another example you could say of a of a chain or at least of a multiple you know outlets because Second Avenue Deli was on Tenth Avenue and Second Avenue and was very very famous, uh, very colorful owner Abe Liebewald, who uh, was known as like the mayor of Second Avenue and um, was known as an incredibly warm-hearted, real man. She hired a lot of Holocaust survivors to, to work there when he first opened it in the 40s. And he, um, you know, did a lot of celebrity stunts and things like that, making chopped liver molds of Al Goldstein and all these, you know, whatever. <laughs> and uh, was very tragically murdered in a, in a still unsolved murder in 1996 while he was taking the cash from the restaurant to the bank. And they, several years ago, they said they were on the verge of solving it, but it doesn't seem like anything really happened. So, but yeah, his, his brother Jack and his um, nephew Jeremy, um, even after they closed on 2nd Avenue and 10th Street, ended up opening up at 33rd and 3rd and 75th and 1st. And, um, and they're still going strong. And I, actually, I personally think that, that it is the best quality um, deli food in New York. I'm sure I'll get an argument about that from the fans of, you know, Pastrami Queen and whatever. But, uh, oh, no, no, Pastrami Queen just also opened another in Times Square. Has anyone been to that one? I haven't been to that yet. Is it as good as the one on the Upper East Side? (laughs) Did you get one? How big is a sample from a Jewish deli? Like, when I was a kid, we had a Baskin Robbins on my corner. If we had got a sample that was like a tiny little spoonful, you know, is that, was it like one slice of, of pastrami kind of thing? 
Okay, good. All right. Uh, questions from the audience? David. Uh, not so much, a, just two comments. Uh, one is that uh, you were talking about um, Chinese restaurants. I think it's fair to say that Chinese food served in America bears no more resemblance to what the Chinese eat than, than Jewish deli food did to what the Eastern European Jews ate. That's the first comment. The second one is just to, to proselytize on behalf of a film on Amazon. If anybody hasn't seen Deli Man, we really should. It's a brilliant movie that deals with a lot of these issues. It's a, it's a really great movie. My only real quibble with it is that it centers on a deli owner in Houston and not in New York. I was like, why not? If you're going to make a movie about Jewish delis, I mean, it has it does interview people from all over the country and whatever kind of thing. Um, but you're you're right. I mean, the the food doesn't really necessarily bear any relation. And nowadays, especially, I mean, pastrami is now being used by all different kinds of chefs and all different kinds of restaurateurs. You know, in in weird ways. This is pastrami. This is pastrami ice cream. It's a pastrami ice cream sandwich. Right? Is it kosher? I <laughs> Definitely not. And also the techniques of pastrami. There's pastrami octopus now, which is becoming very popular in restaurants. You can pastrami anything, right? If you, if you spice it, you know, and cure it and smoke it, it's pastrami, right? I mean, they make pastrami locks, right? I mean, I'm sure you've had that. So why not pastrami and octopus? Anything else? Or, there'll be a, one sec. We'll get a mic. Any delis in the state of Israel? Uh, interesting question. I once wrote an article for Haaretz about why deli food never became really popular in Israel as it is. In, <laughs> there, there was one in Tel Aviv called Rubens that closed. Um, delis never really took hold in, in Israel, even though there's clearly an expatriate American Jewish population there. But I think the reason why is because it is such a different culture, and it doesn't have the same cultural resonances that the deli. See, the thing that I, my thing on the deli is that it's really, you know, the food is, I wouldn't say incidental, because it's clearly important, you know, what, what you're eating. But, but the, the food itself is less important to me than the environment in which it's consumed. My book is really less about deli food than it is about the deli as a, you know, Jewish neighborhood institution, as a place where people would come together, um, which we really don't have anymore. I mean, that's why I'm really sad about delis fading out. Not because the food is disappearing. The food's not really going to disappear, you know? What I'm concerned about is where do Jews gather other than in a religious context? And non-Orthodox synagogues are also fading out, of course, you know, so it's not so easy. Um, even, to, you know, in another generation, I'm not sure how many Reform and Conservative synagogues are even going to exist. But that said... Right? I mean, what are the places where Jews can come together in a secular context? And, 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 and Jews of all different, I mean, the thing about the deli was it was Jews of all different social classes, all different levels of religious observance, right? I mean, that's something that made it very, very special. I mean, or, even Orthodox Jews, right? I mean, a lot of people grew up modern Orthodox in, in, in New York. And they say that, you know, as long as it had Hebrew national, uh, sign outside that said Hebrew national or Zion kosher, then they were comfortable eating there, whether it was open on Shabbat or not, whether the guy who was actually supervising the kashrut was an Orthodox, you know, well, they didn't care. It was like it said kosher, it was kosher. Can you imagine that nowadays? It's very, very hard, you know, for Jews of different levels of religious observance to be together in, in, the, in the way that it used to be. 
And, you know, and that's what, you know, I mean, where, where else? I mean, maybe Jewish film festivals. I mean, they're, I mean, that's why for me, you know, the fact that my kids go to Camp Ramah, the fact that they're, you know, involved in BBYO and other Jewish, you know, youth groups and things like that is so, is so important because that's where they socialize with other Jewish kids, where they make friends that will hopefully last a lifetime. Um, and, and where they really develop a, a desire to have a mostly Jewish friendship circle and, and, and be among other Jews, which you just can't take for granted anymore. You know, I mean, it's just not true outside of, I mean, that's what I love about living in Pikesville um, in, in Baltimore. Um, but how many, how many really Jewish neighborhoods are there left in the, in the United States that, that aren't ultra-Orthodox, you know, enclaves? There really aren't that many. Squirrel Hill? Actually, right? Um, there, you know, there are there are there are a few. Um, you know, Great Neck, not even Great Neck anymore. You know, Great Neck is actually becoming much more Asian. For a while, it, there were a lot of Persian Jews who were coming in um, in the late '80s, '90s, so on. Right, a lot of Iranian Jews coming into Great Neck and, and Beverly Hills. Right, um, my high school, Great Neck South, is a majority of Asian students right now. I can't see who's who's speaking. I can't. Oh, in the back. Okay. Teaneck. I mean, these are places that not Teaneck. Um, Fort Lee. Um, you know. Okay. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So these are places where Jewish delis still conceivably could. Are there delis in those places? Franklin Lake. Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll go two last questions, Michael. Uh, my question is kind of about the, the word deli and okay. touching on the origins that you, you you mentioned that it's very much an America a Jewish kind of take on an American thing, which sort of jives with your question of do they exist in Israel, which I guess they don't, as my Israeli husband tells me. Um, and that is kind of a testament maybe to the fact that they're um, American. W what I notice nowadays is so many people, usually ones who are not from New York and or not Jewish, refer to like corner stores as delis. And I always think it's the most peculiar misnomer because to me the, those are not delis um and i don't know if i'm being a, a gourmet snob or something I'm, I'm just wondering how did that transformation happen and is it because the the the, the deli was never really jewish in the first place because i one fact i don't know if it is mentioned in your book um which i haven't read yet that the word delicatessen is not is was german and the concept was german is that not correct not correct, but okay. So, so correct I mean, yes, it was. I mean, delicatessen is a German word, but what does it come from originally? A lot of people think it comes from the word essen, right, to to eat. But the word delicatessen actually doesn't. It comes from the word delicatus, which in Latin meant actually anything that was exciting, enticing, um, alluring, voluptuous. I mean, so one of the things that I really play with a lot in the book and have a lot of fun with is the whole sort of erotic subtext of the Jewish deli. Funny, your food, question. You know? And and that's why and that's why I think that, you know, I mean part of what really marked Jewish delis was it, it, they were very convivial, very relaxed kinds of spaces, right? There was something almost primitive about, you know, people eat right. I mean Jews didn't know the 
certainly immigrant Jews, didn't know all the etiquette and the table manners and whatever. So they, they created this space where they could eat with their hands, you know, <laughs> and where there was all this, like, sexual symbolism, these, these um, you know, salamis that were hanging from the ceiling and whatever, and, and, and that's why, and that's, that's why I think that, you know, the most iconic, often when I give talks about the deli, I show a lot of clips from TV shows and movies and things like that, and I always end with that scene from When Harry Met Sally, yeah. <laughs> Which, which I find to be fascinating, right? Because it's the non-Jew, it's the non-Jew who has the most, who takes the most pleasure <laughs> in being in the Jewish deli, right? Almost as if she's sort of connected to some current, you know, to some energy that's there. Um, but that, but that was there all along, you know. That that comes from Yiddish culture, that comes from this sort of sense of Jews being able to let their hair down. You know, and, and not have to worry about the way that the outside society was perceiving them, but to know that they were just among their own. And still, if you go to the Second Avenue Deli now, um, it's not unusual for people to talk to each other who, are, who don't know each other, you know, between different tables. Because it's a sense of, you know, we're all kind of, you know, coming from the same place. And, and that's what I love about the deli. Last question goes to Lenny. Oh, thank you. Just wanted to comment. I live in Great Neck, and um, the deli, Kensington Deli, still there. Kensington Kosher Deli. Yes, and they, when I speak to them all the time, they're very small, no place to sit, apropos what you just said. They said they could never make a living, could never still be there paying the kind of rent they have to on Middle Neck Road without the deliveries. It's really a, um, a situation where it's just make a package for a Super Bowl, for a dinner, for that. And so that's the only way they've been able to be there for the last 40-some-odd years. I, they assure me they'll tell me before they move, because when they move, I'll move. Anyway. Okay. So I think this is really what's happening. And just to sum up, if I could just sum okay. up very quickly, is, yeah, Jew, I mean, this is the problem. I mean, I've spent, you know, decades of my life really writing, you know, researching and, and writing and speaking about New York Jewish culture. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how much longer so many of these aspects of, of, of New York Jewish culture I mean, I, you know, I lived on the Upper West Side. I mean, so many of those, you know, like H&H bagels and, the, you know, so many of those uh, mom-and-pop stores. Artie's Delicatessen was there for a while recently. You know, even that couldn't, couldn't make it. Um, so I'm actually starting a new career in a couple of weeks um, working for APAC. And I'm not going to be writing anymore about Jewish culture. Um, I'm going to be focusing on, you know, the American-Israeli relationship. And maybe that's the future, in some ways, of American Jewish identity. I mean, certainly at APAC, they hope that it will be. <laughs> maybe that's the way. Maybe that's the way to keep American Jews Jewish, you know, is to imbue them, to instill them with, um, with a feeling of connection to, to Hebrew and to, and, and, and to, and to Israel. Um, I don't know. Ted, thank, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, Ted will be up here asking any questions. He's happy to sign books. So um, thank you all for taking the time.